Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 24 of the North Meet South web podcast. You sound so professional right now. Your voice is really deep. Are you sick? No, no. Probably all the cider that I drank last night. The cider that you had last night. Cider makes your voice deeper? Well, it's alcoholic, so... Does that and, make your voice deeper? And, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm still groggy from last night. <laughs> there you go. Did you have a Did you have a uh, copious amount of cider? Uh, probably more than I've had in uh, in quite a while. Were you, were you celebrating or just yeah. having fun or what? Yeah, one of my longtime co-workers actually we used to work with, with him at another job. And uh, I've managed to drag him over to come work with me in my current place. So it was his, his engagement party last night. And uh, yeah, we we're celebrating that, having some fun. Cool, man. That's awesome. Let's see. We've got a couple different things that we're going to talk about this week. I was migrating to 5.4 on a older project and ran into a couple things with that. Uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about, about some mentoring. We missed last week or the last episode because I was dealing with house stuff. So I might be able to talk about that a little bit. And then I wanted to talk also about AWS, IM credentials, and S3, and some things that I ran into with that that I would love to be able to help you avoid in the future, if possible. So let's uh, start with you. Let's talk about mentoring. What is yeah. uh, what? Are, who are you mentoring? So it's actually the guy that I had the engagement party with last night. So okay, he's been working with us for probably six or seven months now, and um, you know he's not he's not a new developer. But he's new to Laravel, so you know we've been so busy, like we've been slammed for so long on so many different projects that he hasn't really had much direct guidance. So he's, you know, he's been plodding along and he's been getting things done, reading the docs, and you know we know the docs are quite good, but Absolutely. a lot of the, a lot of the times it's a case of you don't know what you don't know. So he'll plod along and get something to work, and then I'll have a look at it, and you know this is all good and it's worked fine, but you know here's this magical thing in Laravel that would take your 10 lines or whatever into two or three so yeah but it's been good he's been a little bit stressed out because of the project they're on is kind of tight on its deadlines and so i've you know been put onto that to give him a hand and um it's good as you've experienced in the past and you've mentioned a lot of the stuff is just feels second nature to you but when you're teaching someone else, you realize that it is all things that you just learn but you just mm -hmm. you know you just remember them yeah so it's been good from that perspective to, you know, it helps me as a as a teacher to become, you know, better, I think. Because if you're not revisiting these things over and over again, then, you know, you forget them or you forget that you need to know them. So it's nice to have it fresh and be able to help someone out. But someone tweeted, and I can't remember the context, but I'll try and find the tweet and link it in the show notes. But I always encourage anyone who's worried about writing or blogging or, or teaching to just do it, basically. No matter what point you're at in your career, there is always someone who is struggling with the same thing that you were yesterday. So everyone's got a different way of learning and, you know, what you write might make more sense to someone than what someone else has written previously. So never let that stop you. Yeah, I remember that Jeffrey Zeldman, who is, yeah, is and kind of was the guy behind standards back in the HTML crazy days they run an event apart. And one of the things that he had said in one of his talks, which was really awesome, is he said like, write 
or blog like nobody's going to read it, right? Write like nobody's listening or blog like nobody's listening or even podcast like nobody's listening. Uh, like it doesn't matter. And uh, he said, you know, people's excuses. Well, this has been written about before. And his answer to that is like, but you haven't written about it before. Uh, you have not put your voice out there. And like you said, everybody has a different learning curve and a different way that they learn. And the way that you say it may make more sense to somebody than the way that somebody else said it. So you have a unique perspective. Uh, you are an individual and you've experienced problems and have come to solutions that other people haven't or uh, you've come to it a different way. And so your experience is going to be valuable to someone. So yeah, just get out there, write, blog, podcast, do whatever, and somebody will find value in it. And uh, even if nothing else, sometimes it's almost like, uh, what do they call that? Rubber ducking, yeah. right? Sometimes just hearing yourself say it or making yourself think through it and say it out loud is beneficial to you as well. So it's it's going to be worth your time. I, there's a lot of things I've learned while writing a blog post. Because it's like, that doesn't look exactly right, or that's not the best way to explain that. I know there's a better way to explain that. How can I explain that better? And it pushes me to go do some research and learn something that maybe I didn't know that I wouldn't have learned if I wasn't blogging about it. So, yeah. yeah. And even in doing that, while you're blogging, you might come across a solution that you for something you've been doing. And as you're writing about it, you might look at it and uh, something might come to you and it'd be even better than what you're writing. So it's all about self-improvement whilst helping others. Yeah. And the thing too, you were talking about with like forgetting that you've learned certain things that you just take as everybody knows them. A lot of times those are difficult things to remember. And I think that's why pairing is really important because those are things that will just come out as you're pairing with somebody. So you're just going to be doing something and then they're going to say, oh, what was that you just did there? What was, what was, the, you know, I saw you had a request helper and you just kind of pushed an array in there and said, oh yeah, that's a new thing that Adam Wathen showed me the other day. And I, you know, I didn't know about it. It was not in the docs anywhere. It's just this little helper thing. And so those are things that you never really think to mention, yeah. but people will notice it as, as you're coding. So if you watch Laracasts at all, a lot of times Jeffrey Way will do something that you notice and he's not even talking about the thing that he's doing right but you notice oh that's interesting what was that that he did and now you've got a cool little trick that will improve your workflow yeah. and make your code a little bit that's better right. um one thing confession time uh -oh. one thing that i always forget is relationship methods which whether it's save or create or associate or dissociate or attach i i always 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 forget those things yeah i'm trying to think of a common one that i have to always look up the argument order for but Anymore, I don't really have to look up argument order very often because in PHP Storm, I have a key, keyboard shortcut assigned. I think I use Command-Shift-P, and it shows me the argument order yeah. and what type of you know what type of argument it needs to be, if it's array or string or mixed or whatever, uh, which is super helpful. Uh, I, I think it's probably spoiling me. There are some things that I don't know because I use that. Yeah. You know, it's I don't ever have to... Uh, I don't ever have to know. I just use the use the IDE as a crutch a little bit, yeah. I guess. Uh, I was going to say, so I've been mentoring this guy, Jordan Center, and uh, he's Big J Man 123 on Twitter and on GitHub. So say hi to him if you get a chance. But he's working on a phaser project, which has been really cool. And it's kind of nearing a point of being able to be somewhat released. So it's been pretty cool. So he built it, and then I've been helping him refactor it. And that's been... That's been fun. And it's been really cool getting into Phaser. It's an awesome, awesome platform. Yeah. I've had so much fun messing with it. So I know we've talked about that in a previous show as well. But uh, We'll have to link it up in the show notes to see how it's progressed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Uh, what else have you been working on this week? Um, or last, really last, the last three weeks, I yeah, suppose. That's weeks. how long it's been since we've done this show. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, did we, did we talk about our large Google storage bill? No. No, we did not. No. So we did talk about the issues that I've had. We ended up getting stuck in some loop. We weren't popping a job off a queue correctly in one of our processes. And part of that process was to call out to Google Storage and download a file and then process it from local storage. But for whatever reason, the job failed and we put the job back on the queue and then got stuck in a loop and retrying over and over again. And so we just downloaded the same file. Oh, no from Google Storage. And when you're on a gigabit link and you've got 10 workers all doing the same thing, your bill gets very big very quickly. (laughs) Oh, man. It kind of has never made sense to me that the Q work command doesn't have a number of tries by default. I've never come into a situation where I want a failed job to keep trying until forever for Kingdom Come. And for those of you who haven't used it before, when you run Q work uh, or Q listen, you have to specify the number of tries that you want it to try before it will pop it off the queue and say, forget it, I'm not doing it anymore. And if you don't put a number of tries on there, it will literally just keep trying it forever yeah. until your machine runs out of memory, which has happened to me before, or until you get a massive Google bill, which has happened to Michael. So make sure that you put tries on there. It's dash dash tries. I usually do three. But doesn't wouldn't that make sense to have it be on there by default? Uh, yeah, you think so? I thought it was we in production use two uh, when i'm using testing it's just one because if it fails it's i'm probably expecting it to fail yeah but our queue workers in this particular case were just plain old php workers they're not they're not laravel applications and we've we've been having some interesting issues around that because we will we have basically a pipeline of tasks so we have a job which will have six or seven different steps and each each of those is a queue job so we have when one finishes, the next one starts until it gets to the end of the, the list. So we've basically got two connections to our Beanstalk server and on two different tubes or two different queue, different queue names. So we've got one that's called console and one that's called transcoder. The first three tasks or so in the job are all handled by the console queue. Then we fire off a job, which is a push raw job onto uh, the transcoder queue with just some plain JSON. And that goes into... The same physical, you know, Beanstalk server, but a different connection in Laravel, different queue name. And for whatever reason, periodically that job will just fail. For no reason, we'll get an error that connection timed out or whatever. The the rest of the process stops. And I haven't figured out quite why. It seems like a network issue. If I bounce the the worker, then then it, you know, continues on its merry way once I restart the job. But for whatever reason, it just get connection timeout or it just hangs there yeah connection closed yeah Yeah, it just sits there and hangs yeah i i've had that happen before as well um so we've just put in some manual retries just a while loop in those jobs that do a push raw and uh yeah otherwise we'll just throw an exception and bail out we basically treat any failure uh, any exception as a cause to just bail out of the whole process because if the one step fails any subsequent steps will fail so it's been a bit annoying, which is um, we need to put in an automated way to retry jobs and kick them off from where they failed. Uh, so that's yeah, been my life. When you use push raw, so typically the way that I am queuing things is I'll have a job 
that I'll say this should queue or extends or implements should queue. Yeah. And then I'll dispatch that job and it will push itself onto the queue. With push raw, is it literally you're just saying, here's a string of JSON and whatever is handling that should accept that JSON and then yeah. and then act upon it? Yeah, that's that's the kind of annoying thing, I guess, with the, the way the Laravel does its jobs is that it assumes that the worker is also going to be uh, a Laravel app. We, I mean, which is fine because nine times out of 10, it will be. But as I said, our transcode workers are just external. They're not full Laravel apps. So we can't just push a job onto the queue and expect that it's going to work on the other end. So yeah, we just push some JSON onto the queue and it works really well. And then is there something else that's that's working off of that queue that's not a Laravel app? That your transcoder is not a Laravel app, is that right? Yeah. So your transcoder is pointing at that queue and it's just sucking down mm -hmm. jobs in JSON format and then deleting them when it's done? Yep. Interesting. Yeah, so we're just using Feenstalk and uh, yeah, pulling the jobs off the queue and they do what they need to do and it would just fire an event back. So we set up a series of webhooks in the, the front-end application. Uh, so once the transcode finishes its job, it sends a callback back to the origin and uh, and the next task goes from there. Pretty cool. Are you including your uh, webhook URL in that JSON, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah we include the yeah. callback URL. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Awesome. Yeah, it's um, and most of the stuff that I'm dealing with, I, I use Laravel apps on both ends. Now, they don't, they're not always consumed by the same applications. You know, sometimes I have a queue that's pushed on one that's consumed by another, but typically they're both a Laravel application. So uh, I do have some that pass JSON back and forth, but I guess I was not aware that you could do push raw and just push JSON up there. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's pretty handy. And it means that we can just have those queue workers in PHP today or could be in Go or Python or whatever else. You know, it doesn't matter as long as whatever it is can deserialize JSON and uh, speak with Beanstalk. That makes good sense. Speaking of a non-Laravel application, there was actually something I had a need to communicate. So I had an old application that was a legacy application that had passwords. I'm not going to say... Well, where this application is coming from, but there was an application I had to mess with that had passwords stored in plain text. <gasps> gasp, which is actually a legitimate gasp. Yeah. That's a bad, bad thing. Do not ever store type passwords in plain text, but it was a really old application. Like I'm saying 10 years old. Yeah. So not saying it's an excuse, but just saying it was, you know, whatever it was 10 years ago. So that being the case, they've upgraded and patched and duct taped this thing together for the last 10 years. And now they're needing to do a couple couple changes, as you can imagine. Yeah. So I was going to write a password reset flow for this, but I knew it was going to be super painful to write in this in this application. So what I did is I used I spun up a new Laravel application with the sole purpose of being able to reset passwords. So an API call is made to the password reset application with a API token and the email address of the user and the user ID. And then it fires off an email to that user. The user clicks on it. I created a password reset token, a whole flow. They come in, they change their password. It will hash the password and then it actually gets access directly to the database of the application that it's going to be updating. So it goes and grabs the user ID and updates the password. But man alive, it was so much faster to do it that way than <laughs> yeah. it was to do it in the legacy application. I think that's the first time I've ever done that, though, where I'm like, this is way too hard to do in an old, crufty PHP, plain PHP. You know, I'm so yeah. spoiled by Laravel. So it's just like, create a password reset model, create a table, create a migration, create a controller, a route. Oh, man. It's just like, I feel like I... 
can just fly through this stuff when yeah. I'm in Laravel. And it's like, and when I have to go back to just plain vanilla PHP, like none of this stuff set up, oh, it's going to be so painful. Yeah, spend all your time boilerplating. Exactly. You really do. You really do. And it's like, I knew I could get API authentication out of the box, rate limiting. I could handle all of that stuff, just the click of a button pretty yeah. much. So it was really uh, nice. And so I finished that today, actually. So it's running. It's working perfectly. Excellent. That's what you want. Yep. Let's see. A bug that I encountered today that is worth mentioning. If you're updating your... Uh, really, if you're upgrading any of your applications, Laravel applications from 5.2 to 5.3, 5.3 to 5.4, 5.1 to 5, whatever, any of them, really, a helpful hint is that when you are updating the configs that did not get shifted, if you're using shift, just copy and paste the default that you have with the latest Laravel version, copy and paste that config, and then push in your your values that were customized. If you don't do that, you are setting yourself up for headache. Case in point, it used to be that Encrypt Cookies was a global middleware, and they changed that to be a web middleware, which totally makes sense because you don't want Encrypt Cookies on an API route. But what ended up happening is it didn't get taken out of the global middleware and it was still on the web middleware. So it was encrypting the cookies and then it was encrypting them again. <laughs> so you had encrypted, encrypted cookies and it couldn't read them then. Shocker. Or when it decrypted them, it decrypted them to an encrypted value. So it was it was a mess. So just that is something I've run into time and time again. When I find when I have other people that are upgrading applications and they don't do it that way, you always run into problems. So just copy and go to the latest version of Laravel that you're working with. So, you know, github.com slash Laravel slash Laravel. Find the version that you're updating to, 5.2, whatever. Go to the config that is for that version, copy that, paste it in, and then do a, do kind of like a diff on your values that were customized in there and push those back in. Do not try and take the config that's from 5.2 and squeeze it in with yours. Yeah. It's, you, you'll never get it completely no. right. So just a tip there. Solid advice. Solid advice. Uh, let's see. What else you got, man? Anything else going on in your life that we should know about? Um, Any Michael Dorinda secrets? Uh, no secrets. If you follow me on Twitter. <laughs> True we, story. Um, we had a, a public holiday on Monday. So day off of work. Nice long weekend. And then Adele was in town oh, cool. on Monday. So my wife and I went and saw her on Monday night, which was really, really good. I hadn't realized that she had never toured before. And she was saying throughout her whole show that she was nervous and she gets really chatty when she gets nervous and, and she doesn't like being up on the stage. But, but boy, oh boy, can she sing. Yeah. And she's a terrific entertainer. And I don't know if you've ever seen her in interviews or anything, but uh, she's hilarious. I have not. That's funny. I'll have to go check some of that. So that was really good. It was really, really loud. And I didn't realize when you're there, it was, it was at our football oval. And it was outside and uncovered. And you don't really think about it when you're there. But a friend of mine who lives 15 kilometers, so six, seven miles, I guess. And anyway, he was messaging me saying, can you please turn it down because I'm trying no to sleep. No way. So, Seriously. I mean, it was not audible where he was, but, but he, he could, hear, he could sure. hear the sound. Yeah, for sure. Wow. That's incredible. And I sort of thought to myself, you know, it must be really bad for my ears being this close to it. And if he can hear it that far away. No joke. I, they have, I saw on Shark Tank the other day, they have these earbuds that you can put in that don't, they don't degrade the quality of the sound. They just kind of take off the top. Take yeah. The dust, you know, bring down the decibels. 
so you can enjoy you know live shows without damaging your ears because that's for sure damaging your ears yeah, no definitely. doubt about it yeah so yeah yeah we did that and then because it was a late night and we left that stadium generally seats i think it's sixty three thousand in the you know in the stands because she played in the round like it was this stage in the middle of the oval so then they also had seating on the ground so there was an extra sure. 20,000 there so they ended up having this is not big by american standards no but for adelaide we had 70 over 70,000 there at that event and and it took us half an hour or so to get from the front door to to the road and then another, wow. you know, 15, 20 <laughs> minutes to walk to the train station, which is normally a five-minute walk away. So we got home. It was, it was just after midnight, I guess. And luckily, we had both taken the Tuesday off work. So we had a nice little sleep in and went out for lunch and uh, had a nice, nice, you know, a few days off work. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been alive to a live concert, a live show of any type, really. I get to go see movies every once in a while, but man, live shows just don't make it into my schedule very yeah. often. It's hard to, you know, the thing, the biggest thing I think is babysitters for the kids yeah. overnight, you know, cause it's never, it's, the shows always go late. Right. Yeah. And they're always in Chicago. So it's like, we're going to have to get up there and, you know, watch the show, stay there and then come back the next day. So babysitters overnight is always a little bit of a yeah. trick, but, uh, yeah, there's some really cool stuff up in Chicago that I'm always sad that I miss, but <laughs> <laughs> someday I'll get up there. I remember when we first moved here, it was like, oh, my word, we're, Chicago's only two hours away. We're going to go there all the time. <laughs> we love Chicago. Nope. We're in Chicago less now than we ever were yeah. before we moved here. Yeah. This is funny. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit quickly about IM credentials in, in uh, AWS and then a couple other gotchas that I ran into when dealing with resources in buckets. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is how you set up IM credentials. Now, typically the way that you can do it is if you create a new S3 bucket or if you create access to an RDS sort of resource or something like that, you can generate, they're called inline policies, I believe, that essentially are a one-off policy to access that specific resource. So if I have a bucket that's created that's called test bucket, and I have two or three different applications that all need to kind of talk to that central location, I can use that one user that I created to access that resource and copy and paste that key and secret credentials across uh, all three of those applications and just store it in the .env. The problem that I ran into is that I accidentally committed those credentials in my .env.example up to uh -oh. GitHub. Uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. Now, they are private repositories, so I wasn't too scared, but there's always the chance that something's going to get out. And so what I did is I pulled it out of the repository and then I was like, okay, where am I using this in? And I found that I was actually using it, you know, in two or three different places, which was kind of a pain yeah. to change because it was just hard to track down. And I didn't know where all I was using it. And then I found out there was one place that I missed it. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I do this better? And AWS IM credentials had always kind of been a black box for me a little bit. So I spent a little bit of time figuring out what the best way to do this was. And the, the solution that I came up with is you have a couple different layers. Users, you have groups, and you have policies. So a policy is essentially permission to a specific resource or group of resources. So a resource would be something like an S3 bucket or RDS or Amazon SES or one of those services that they provide. 
So instead of having a user that just has an inline policy that says, hey, let it access this resource, what I've done is I've created policies. For instance, one the policy that is called admin S3 trash bucket, for instance. Okay, so that is, they have full read write access to that specific bucket. And then what I'll do is I will create a different user for each one of my applications. So I have a legal application, I have an FA application, and I have a tasks application. All three of those need access to that trash bucket, but each one of those is a separate user in uh, AWS IAM. And then what I'll do is I will attach that policy to each one of those users. Now, there are groups as well, but I've found that seems to be sort of overkill. I, I've never needed to have a group of resources that applied to multiple users. So what I'm just doing is attaching the policy directly to the users. But what that allows you to do is in the case that your credentials for any one of those applications was compromised, you only have to change one key and secret. Each application has its own key and secret. And it's really easy to do that in, in AWS IAM. You just say revoke credentials and create new credentials and you change it in that one application. And now you have access to all the things you would have had before but you only had to change those credentials once instead of it across three different applications. Yeah. So I've found that to be a really great way to handle that stuff. Have you ever dealt with IAM credentials at all or messed with that stuff? Yeah, we have. Not with Amazon, obviously, but I've always found it's it's big black box and it's very granular, but at the same time, it's it's not easy to use. You've basically got to have a degree in you know how to do it to, to, get, to get it to do what you want right. it to do. Right. We've had to do similar things with Google Storage. Their policy and their security policies are a bit different to what is used with Amazon, in my experience. But what we ended up doing, because we're managing video transcode for multiple different clients, we don't necessarily want you know each of those clients to be able to see video. So the X permissions, we haven't quite figured out exactly how we want to do it to segment them within a single project. So in order for one of our IAM users to be able to write to a, a bucket, they need to have admin access to storage, not just write access to the bucket, which then means that they're going to be able to list out potentially other clients' buckets and, and obviously the videos, which we don't want. So what we've ended up having to do in our case is to create a new project for each customer and then create new credentials for each project. So then we put our three core buckets in there, which is an incoming, a videos bucket and a process bucket where we put the, the files after they've been transcoded. And then we just give the credentials access to that project for storage and then write access to the buckets. So that's how we've sort of segmented it out that way. And so we can theoretically have three sets of credentials, one for each of those buckets for each project. But it also means that if a client wants to come to us with their own Google storage and say, you know, we want to manage the storage, here are the credentials and we'll just plug that into our application and off it goes. So that's the way that we've sort of dealt with it. And it also helps us from a billing perspective because then we can break down per project and subsequently per customer, their individual billing. And that makes it easier on our end as well. Yeah. Otherwise, it'd be impossible to track. Yeah. I mean, there, you'd never be able to do no. it. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I've kind of been looking into, there's a couple different ways to allow people access to your resources. And there was a really good article that I read uh, that was talking about basically using a serverless environment. But the way that they were giving access to different things on S3 is they weren't using the SDK to interact with them and allow their, their application to be the middleman. Instead, what they were doing is they were granting either access uh, using a signed URL 
So you can create a signed URL, which gives them temporary access. You can set a time limit. So you can say like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. You can do that. The other thing that you can do is, which is kind of cool, I've looked into just a little bit, is Amazon has a thing called Cognito. And you can create these credentials that uh, are not as granular and as powerful as IAM credentials, but can be attached to you know users in your system that it's, it's, it's a much lighter weight credential. And it's more targeted to like users of your service rather than admin users who are going to be, yeah. you know, that sure. would essentially be like your application. Mm-hmm. So that's something interesting I'm hoping to look into in the near future here. And hey, who knows, before, before long, I might start taking some of those AWS courses. That'd be cool yeah. to get like certified in some of that stuff. Not that I really care about the certification, but more because I'm interested in learning about it. It's yeah. a really important skill these days. Who's not using AWS, Me. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, we did the same thing with signed URLs. The only thing that needs to talk to or access the transcoded videos is the streaming server. So it has its own credentials to access those buckets and the variants in them. And when we generate a top level manifest file, which points at all those variants, we make that file available publicly, but all the other files are just like with basic credentials but in the event that a user wants to then download the video the original video from storage we just generate them a signed url that expires after 10 minutes so as long as they download it straight away before the link expires that's fine and you know you don't necessarily want anyone to be able to download the original videos which could be you know 1080 or 4k or you know tens of gigs in size uh, especially if it's behind a paywall for access normally. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And uh, it makes it nice that you don't have to, that you don't have to be the middleman, right? That you don't have to have a a token for your application that goes up and grabs it and streams it down between you yeah. and them. You just want to say like, give me a signed URL and send them off to go do what they need to do. Amazon can handle delivering the file to them. I don't want to have to be the middleman for that. There's no need. Cool. Well, we I'm sure there's a couple other things we could talk about related to that. This is a big topic. Uh, hopefully, we can revisit this in, in future episodes. I was going to talk a little bit about how you can check existence of objects in an S3 bucket. Uh, if you have any questions about that, you can hit me up on Twitter. Uh, it is a solved problem, even though if you look on Stack Overflow, they would have you believe otherwise. So if you are looking to see if an object exists, or sorry, not an object, a directory, If you're looking to see if a directory on S3 exists, it is possible and it is easy to do. It's just a little bit of a trick. So I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. Come back in two weeks and and let us uh, talk to you about how that works or hit us up on Twitter and be happy to tell you about that. Uh, You got anything else before we wrap it up here? Yes. One other thing. If you go to our website, store.northmeetsouth.audio, we have some merchandise now. So Awesome. If you like the show and you have it, any interest whatsoever in walking around wearing a t-shirt with our logo on it we'll have a few different sizes and apparel options so t-shirts and tank tops and hoodies and that stuff with our logos on it so we would be very grateful very cool i'll be i'll be rocking one at laricon for sure yeah i think we might even give a couple away at laricon yeah that'd be fun that'd be a great idea so uh, we'll be bringing lots of stickers and stuff like that too to laricon so if you see us make sure you ask for one to put on your laptop or whatever and represent north meets south well thanks everybody for listening uh you can hit us up at north south audio on twitter if you have any questions for future episodes if you'd like to ask us anything that we didn't answer in this show or suggest future topics Uh, You can get the show notes for this episode at northmeetssouth.audio slash 24. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Until next time. See you around. See you around.